this is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. This time, in fact, it's 70 degrees and we're excited to see the sun. But even under the sun, there are often very dark spots in American life. Cara and I would like to offer our condolences to the family and friends of those who were killed um, in Boulder, Colorado and Atlanta. And as two educators and as parents and as friends who as group, you know, people who have friends across different ethnic groups. We also want to wish more safety uh, to Asian Americans across the country who now find themselves targeted for violence unnecessarily and who find their way of life threatened. We are learning how to also be civil, how to be moral, and how to speak truth to power. Yeah, Gerard, I hope that we're... uh want to teach our children how to be civil and how to be moral. But um, every time we have to open this show with more condolences or discussion, discussing yet another tragedy, um, mm-hmm. start to feel sickened and feel just the tiniest bit of the, of the pain that folks who have to go through this might be uh, enduring. Um, and so I'm glad that, that you mentioned it. I'm glad that we can highlight it. would also say that um, shame on shame on me and shame on so many of us for, you know, I think that the problem with um, biases and violence against Asian American and Pacific Islanders people has off, has been going on, of course, for as long as they've been in this country for generations and generations and generations. And it's not something that um, really gets much mainstream attention. And um, the fact that it would take a mass shooting of this nature to to bring mass to mass attention to to an issue that, to be clear, um, like one only need to think back to the middle of this century to begin to understand some of the disgusting harms perpetrated against people of, of Asian descent, um, U.S. citizens, I should say. Um, so thank you for bringing it up. And although I would like for us to not have these conversations ever again, unfortunately, um, I don't know. I don't have a lot of confidence. Actually, I have no confidence that that there won't be another tragedy. So hopefully what we can continue to do is, like you say, uh, educate ourselves and educate our children about uh, a better way to do things in this country. So what is your story for the week? Well, we started off with quite a somber opening there, Gerard, but my story is actually one that I I think is quite happy. Um, there are others who will disagree. I want to I want to take us to Kentucky for my story, but I want to first say that this has just been a big week, a big month for advocates of educational opportunity and for kids who might even might not even know that they're advocating for educational opportunity. But West Virginia just recently passed the first universal ESA, which means that children who are currently enrolled in public school, which is the vast majority of children in the state of West Virginia, if they are in grades K to 12, they will be eligible for an education savings account, um, money to spend, state money to spend on everything from private school tuition to much needed tutoring services, educational therapies, you name it. Um, It's a really big deal. But I think the sleeper here was Kentucky. So (laughs) the state of Kentucky, the legislature 
last week passed a tax credit funded education scholarship account, which I'm just going to call an education scholarship account or an education savings account. We can use those two terms, but I don't want to emphasize the funding mechanism as much as I want to emphasize what it's going to do for kids and families, because much like um, West Virginia, this is going to allow students, this one has income thresholds, but it's going to allow um, students in the state of Kentucky whose families make below a certain income level to access everything from private school tuition to special educational therapies and lots of other services. Um, I got to admit that I was hoping this one would happen. Wasn't too convinced. The governor vetoed it and the legislature then came back with an override. So um you know, we can t- we'll can we take some good with the bad, Gerard, and this is a big win, and we've still got a lot of other states that we're watching. I think that COVID's shown a light on the need for these programs, and, and we're rolling. So there you go. How about you? Well, I'm going to join you in the excitement as relates to West Virginia and Kentucky. As you know, my father was born and raised in West Virginia, in Charleston in particular, the capital. Uh, I spent some time there as a kid. In fact, I had a chance to uh, speak at uh, one of the universities a couple of years ago. Uh, that state, for a host of reasons, has a number uh, of et- uh, economic and educational challenges. Uh, glad to see this move forward. Naturally, we're going to hear all the stories that it's going to be the end of the world and public education as we know it will just go underground. But let's just think about the state where it is today. Uh, one of the highest death rates in the nation as relates to drug overdose, a higher incarceration rate for a number of women, uh, those in Charleston, which would be the urban area, maybe even a Morgantown, but in the rural parts and what we call the Appalachian Trail, I mean, they've had challenges for decades. Uh, not saying that this will solve everything, but to do absolutely nothing about the one monopoly approach that we've had thus far I just don't know how you can say you're trying to help all children and not at least open up multiple opportunities. So I'm glad to see West Virginia move for that. As you know, my AEI colleague, Matt Nalpas, and also Adam Peshek at Coke and myself in 2017 actually co-edited a book on education savings accounts. And so glad to see the early seeds and, you know, Robert Enloe and others, I'm sure, involved with this work pushing forward. Uh, Kentucky is also good to see. I've been to uh, Louisville before, uh, knew the previous governor, knew some members of the legislature. Again, a state with a lot of economic challenges. We often, like I tell people, jails and prisons have often become the, the dropping ground from our moral exhaustion as it relates to what we didn't do for people on the education side of the fence. There are a host of other reasons. But education's one. And so people decided to take a, um, a political stand, draw the line in the sand and say, we're going to support it. Everyone won't, won't be happy. And again, it's not going to solve all the problems, but neither was the status quo approach. So good to uh, the legislators, lawmakers and stakeholders in both of those states, which, in fact, is a segue into my story of the week. And uh, this comes from Adam McCain, who is a writer for uh, Wallet News. And it's from March 16th, 2021. And the title is 2021's Most and Least Innovative States. And Adam you know, opens up with a really good line. He says, quote, innovation is a principal driver of U.S. economic growth. And he talked about the fact that, you know, this year, uh, the U.S. will spend nearly $600 billion on research and development to support innovative ideas. Uh, this is more than any other country in the world, and 25% of the world's total spent 
on investments in research and development. Uh, the number one, two in country is Switzerland and Sweden. Most people would have naturally thought India and China. In fact, India is 46th and China's 14th in terms of the rank for Global uh, Innovation Index. They also, in the 22 factors they used to identify most innovative, least innovative, included some variables from the K-12 sector. They include eighth grade math and science performance, advanced placement examination participation, and the adoption of K-12 computer science standards. To give another shout out to Nat Malkus, my AEI colleague, he writes a great deal about NAEP and when you look at the top performing states or schools, guess what? A lot of those schools have near 100 uh, percent AP participation rate. So when you look at the top 10 states, you will be glad to hear this, that the number one state for innovation is, drumroll, Massachusetts. <laughs> yes. And it's followed by D.C., the state of Washington, Maryland, Virginia, Colorado, California, my home state of former, Delaware, Utah, and New Hampshire. Now, what's most interesting about the top 10 are two things. Number one, only three of those in the top 10 are in the South. That's D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And when you look at the 22 factors and where are the top four states you see a lot of Massachusetts, a lot of D.C., a lot of Maryland and Virginia. So you're really talking about the DMV and where you are. So when we take a look at the rankings, there's just a few I want to share. When you look at states with the highest share of STEM professionals, it's actually D.C. Um, Massachusetts and Virginia are actually tied for fourth. When you look at the best eighth grade math and science performance, it's actually Colorado and Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania tied for one and two. When you look at the um, highest share of science engineering graduates age 25 and older, guess what? It's D.C., Washington, Maryland, California, Massachusetts. And this was an interesting one for me. Highest share of technology companies. In fact, it's number one is Virginia, followed by D.C. Now, when you look at the states that were at the bottom of the list, if we had to have people guess, yes, it's 51st Mississippi and then Louisiana, North Dakota. 48th, West Virginia. But what I'd like to say is that while the researchers used 22 factors to identify the least and most innovative, a lot of it was driven by technology and knowledge-based solutions, which often aren't totally taken into account, which takes place at the K-12 level. So to give a shout out to Mississippi, who finished 51st on this list, we have to remember that actually a couple of years ago, Mississippi ranked number one in the nation for NAEP games uh, right. across the board. And it's people like Peggy Brookins, who's the president and CEO of the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards, who's working with educators in the Delta, in the big cities, moving things forward. So I think there's a lot we can learn from this. Knowledge is power. And this is why we need to have options for everyone. Yeah. And I have to say, I love these kinds of rankings simply because I think that they really do spur states to action. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you give them the example of Mississippi and after Florida saw its pretty huge gains in NAEP. And we haven't even talked about yet the Educational Freedom Index that was published a couple of weeks ago. We'll have to have Pat Wolf back on. But, um, you know. Yep. 
that there's this correlation between, you know, you're talking about innovation, but this study talks about the fact that there's correlation between educational opportunity, how many different opportunities kids have access to, any kid in a state, and NAEP yep. performance. And so if Mississippi, for example, can look to Florida and say, huh, you know what they did? They they looked at K-3 literacy, they did all this stuff, and then a couple of years later, it becomes the rising star on NAEP like Florida was the prior administration. I think that these kinds of rankings really spur a healthy competition and allow state, state leaders, whether it's the governor or the commissioner, to call each other up and say like, hey, what did you do to get there? Hey, Massachusetts. Yes, we will pat ourselves in the back. What did you do to get so innovative? What did you, you know, <laughs> what did you bring into the state? Um, and I just real quick shout out to our Commonwealth. We have been we made some important investments in innovation and very proud to mm-hmm. say, you know, the Moderna vaccine made here. <laughs> I didn't know that. friends working on that day and night for a year for all of us and still working on the pediatric vaccine. So it's a big deal for a pretty small place. But thank you for that story, Gerard. Um, Coming up after this, uh, we are going to be talking with Dr. Susanna Heschel. She is a scholar of, um, you know, she's published many of her own works and um, going to talk to us a little bit about the work of her father as well in the civil rights movement. Um, I think a really great guest to have during this Passover time. So um, right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we're so pleased to have with us today Dr. Susanna Heischel. She's the Eli M. Black Distinguished Professor and the Chair of the Jewish Studies Program at Dartmouth College. She is the author of, among other things, Abraham Geiger and the Jewish Jesus and the Aryan Jesus, Christian Theologians and the Bible in Nazi Germany. She's also edited Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity, Essays of Abraham and Joshua Heschel. She's currently writing a book with Sarah Imhoff, Jewish Studies and the Woman Question. She's also a Guggenheim Fellow. Dr. Susanna Heschel, welcome to The Learning Curve. My pleasure. Thank you. So, you know, you um, are a distinguished scholar in your own right, and you are also um, the child of another distinguished scholar and and um, civil rights, uh, somebody famous, a theologian famous for his move, the civil rights movement and his activism in it. Um, we here on the learning curve talk a lot to educators and we talk a lot about education. So I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit more about your father and why um, educators should be more familiar with his work. We'd also like to hear a bit of you, too, and, and your work and maybe the connections between the two, if any should begin by giving you a very brief biographical description of my father's extraordinary life. He was born in 1907 in Warsaw to a very pious family. All of his ancestors on the male side of the family were rabbis, and they were very distinguished and famous rabbis, charismatic, deeply learned people who wrote books. My father was raised in that atmosphere. He said he was He was raised among people of religious nobility, which I think is a beautiful phrase. And in 1927, he decided to go to Berlin, where he studied at the university, to do a PhD in Jewish philosophy. And he wrote a book about the prophets. And his interest was in the the experience of being a prophet, prophetic consciousness. He remained in Germany. Uh, He tried to get out after Hitler came to power. Finally, he was deported in 1938. And at the last minute, 
he was brought to this country just a few weeks before the war broke out. He was able to leave Europe and come to teach in the United States, where he stayed for the rest of his life. As you mentioned, he became involved in the civil rights movement. He wrote many books on a range of topics. What's extraordinary is that he wrote books in four different languages, and he wrote beautiful prose. He wrote books on the Bible, on rabbinic thought, medieval and modern thought. One of his most popular books is about the Sabbath and its meaning for modern man. That was the title. Can you you mention, um, of course, you know how your father came to this country um, in in 1938, um, and and right before the war broke out. But several members of his family, many members of his family, were killed in the Holocaust. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, how that experience of of losing so many members during the Holocaust shaped his writing, informed his civil rights work here in the United States. Talk a little bit about the the moral urgency he felt. Yeah, so my my father's family was primarily in Poland and also in Vienna. And apart from a few relatives, one brother, one sister, who managed to get out before the war, They were all murdered by Hitler, everybody, nobody survived. Uh, And of course, for my father, it was devastating to lose his mother, three of his sisters, his father had died before the war. But his whole family, extended family and friends, it was also the loss of an entire world, a world that meant so much to him religiously that it nurtured him. And he wrote a tribute to that world, a eulogy in his book, The Earth is the Lord's. Of course, he carried that with him all the time. He didn't write specifically about the Holocaust or about anti-Semitism, but rather he asked himself, what can I do with this now, with this horror that has happened during my life? So, for example, he wrote about what it means to be a human being, how to treat other people, because he felt that the Holocaust was not a question of what God had done, a challenge to our faith in God, but rather it was a challenge to God's faith in us, God seeing what human beings could do to one another. Why should God keep faith in us? That was the question. And of course, he was deeply disturbed by all the people who went along, by people who just stood by and did nothing. And so he felt a a moral urgency, a moral urgency to speak out against injustice. That was the prophetic tradition that he represented. You know, um, on this podcast, we've we've hosted actually several guests who have written personal memoirs um, as they've been witness to life under totalitarian regimes. And one of the threads that seems to run through all of these stories is they, many of our guests discuss the importance of personal stories, the importance of sharing personal stories of suffering in as a means to educating people about, about tyranny. And you, um, as I, as I mentioned, you're a scholar in your own right, but you've also, you've written about, your father, um, you've written about your father's work. Could you talk a little bit about about the power of the personal story and and why you choose to share your father's personal story with others? You know, that's uh, 
that's a very challenging question. And I would say that it is deeply moving to me to have grown up with my father and to have had the opportunity to experience some extraordinary people. Thanks to his friendships, I was able to meet Martin Luther King several times. Uh, I met Mother Teresa once and Dorothy Day and the Berrigan brothers, Phil and Dan Berrigan, William Sloan Coffin, Richard Fernandez, so many really amazing people. And also a few of my father's relatives who were Hasidic Rebbe's, very pious rabbis who had come to the United States before Hitler, who were actually elderly when I knew them as a child. These were people, all of these people, who spent their lives concerned with the question of how can I better myself? How can I live a life that's worthy of being lived in the presence of God? What can I do to inspire other people with my own life? And I felt deeply inspired when I heard Dr. King speak, when I met him, I was moved to tears. He made me fall in love with the Bible. The way he quoted from the prophets was so meaningful to me. And so I suppose I grew up with the sense that what a human being is capable of becoming is really quite extraordinary. And I think, look, here is someone who was once just a little baby and grew up to be Martin Luther King. And I I guess that's, for me, been a challenge. It's also been a hope. It's been very inspiring. And so, so stories about extraordinary people and the chance to meet such a person is a way of um, touching my heart and making me more grateful and especially inspired to strive a bit harder. To follow with the theme of the prophets, you wrote in the introduction of a landmark study with that title, the prophets were not simply biblical figures, my father studied, but they were role models for his life. What lessons can educators draw today about how biblical wisdom can positively shape the lives of young people today? Well, I think what's most extraordinary about the prophets is that here their writings appear in a Bible that gives us some pretty serious and often very strict rules of behavior. And yet the prophets come to us with a passion, a passion that speaks not about great people, extraordinary people, but talks about widows and orphans, people who are marginalized, people who, for the prophets, demand our compassion. My father used to say that compassion, if there's any single word to define Judaism, it's compassion. And so I I would say that the prophets are, first of all, important because of the message that they bring, their insistence on justice and the strength of their voice and the impossibility of being a bystander. And and it's it's so it's the message, but it's also their passion, their emotional involvement with other people, the fact that they care so much. And I think that's important for all of us because everybody wants to be cared about. And the prophets care deeply 
about human life. So in that sense, I think it's a wonderful way to speak to people as an educator, talk about what kind of person we want to have in our lives for ourselves and what kinds of people we want to become. The closing question for me, and this is a follow-up to something you just mentioned. You as a scholar, uh, you've written about Judaism. You've also talked about Christianity and broad areas. What's the, the one thing that keeps your spirit moving as it relates to scholarship and using stories to uplift not only the U.S., but people across the world? Well, I think what's fabulous about scholarship is that I open a book and I see a new world. Uh, I read a, a really great work of scholarship and all of a sudden I have ideas, I have knowledge that I never thought of before. And that's thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling. It's exciting. It's fantastic. And so, for example, uh, just last week I read Ebony and Ivy, a book by a, a historian named Craig Wilder, which is about colleges and universities, especially in the New England area, but not only, uh, from already the 17th, 18th, 19th century, how deeply involved they were in slavery, not only owning slaves, but also benefiting from the money earned by slave owners and slave traders uh, that then made donations to the colleges and much more than that. But it's a book that changes the way I see the world. And so I'm grateful for that. It's deeply, of course, deeply, deeply upsetting and troubling, but it also helps me understand that what I wrote about uh, about universities in Germany under Hitler and how universities collaborated with Hitler, that I see that such things are also some part of, of human society. They're not limited to a single country uh, or a single era. This keeps happening. And perhaps knowing that makes me feel that all of us have to work much, much harder would you mind sharing with us a passage from a book of your choosing? Of course, I'm happy to do that. Um, I'll, I'll read a passage from uh, the first chapter of my father's book on the prophets. He writes, the prophet is a person who feels fiercely. God has thrust a burden upon his soul and he's bowed and stunned at man's fierce greed. Frightful is the agony of man. No human voice can convey its full terror. Prophecy is the voice that God has lent to the silent agony, a voice to the plundered poor, to the profane riches of the world. It is a form of living, a crossing point of God and man. God is raging in the prophet's words. Dr. Susanna Heschel, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us today. We greatly appreciate listening, listening to you and learning from you. So, Kara, my tweet of the week is actually from our U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. It is from the 28th of this month, and it says, 
45 states have prioritized educators getting vaccinated. And according to at CDC Gov, we've created a toolkit that will help schools communicate with their staff about the vaccination. It has everything you need to make sure that everyone is educated about the process. Check it out. So it's good to see our U.S. Secretary of Education taking a leadership role in putting out the word. He said he was going to reopen schools, Gerard. He said he was going to do it. So let's hope that getting all these educators vaccinated and helping them feel safe in the classroom um, is is the last thing it takes, I hope, I don't know, to get our schools open and get kids where they want to be. So um, we'll be something we'll be watching, right? <laughs> let's see how yep. this whole thing goes. Um Gerard, next week, we are going to be, I'm, I'm particularly excited about this one. We're going to be speaking with Professor Bettany Hughes. Um, she's just done some really fascinating work. Um, she's an award-winning historian. She's a documentarian. She's a BBC broadcaster. And she's written um, several best-selling books, in, including, I, I love this title, Helen of Troy, Goddess, Princess, Whore. <laughs> I, that's the one that caught my attention when I was reading her biography. I went, well, this is straight talk. I mean, yeah. And like, what a great title. And then also the Hemlock Cup, Socrates, Athens, and the search for the good life. I'm all about searching for the good life, right, Gerard? And finally, Venus and Aphrodite, History of a Goddess, which is her latest book. So looking forward to speaking with her next week. And until then, Gerard, I hope you stay safe. I hope we have a less somber opening to the show next week because we won't have anything somber to talk about. And um, have a wonderful rest of your week. Enjoy the sunshine. Same to you and yours. Mm -hmm.